Drew Balfour, the two in a brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance, his weekly Monday appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. In fact, it's been uh, not just one week but two since Dave Cameron made his uh, most recent appearance on Fangraphs Audio. That's not his fault. It's my fault. I, Carson Sestouli, the host of Fangraphs, uh, took a week off as I traveled into the southern part of Italy and uh, up to Croatia. Zadar, Croatia may or may not uh, mean anything to you. Anyway, it's from Croatia where I conducted this interview, uh, this conversation with Dave Cameron. What do we talk about? Well, the conversation starts with Brandon McCarthy. Brandon McCarthy has posted one of the best XFIPs, that's expected fielding independent pitching, expected fielding independent pitching. He's supposed to be one of the best of those in, among all qualified starters, and yet one of the worst ERAs among that same group. It's a fact which dovetails reasonably well uh, with the piece that Cameron wrote last week about projections and the degree to which you should trust them, that degree being a lot. Brandon McCarthy probably is a good pitcher, uh, we learn. Probably should be preventing more runs. That's certainly a focus uh, of the conversation to follow. Another one, uh, of course, having been away from the sport uh, for a week plus, I will not know what has happened during that time. However, it serves an opportunity to review which teams are perhaps uh, either under or overperforming expectations. Tampa Bay Rays, for example, a team that has been uh, quite competitive for five plus years, has only a 1.5% chance uh, as of Monday, a 1.5% chance of making the divisional playoff series. What's happened there? The Kansas City Royals, on the other hand, uh, despite the difficulties of uh, third baseman Mike Moustakas, for example, uh, have over a 20% chance of making those same divisional playoffs. And the San Francisco Giants, the San Francisco Giants, which share a division with the uh, well-compensated Los Angeles Dodgers, have an 80% chance of making those same divisional playoffs. I asked Dave Cameron what has gone either right or wrong for all of these clubs. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. It's good. It's a uh, yeah. It's nice. I guess. I mean, I don't. I probably wouldn't want to do it forever. <laughs> I think Europe wouldn't want you to do it forever either. Yeah, I think that there are no, there are a lot of reasons not to do it forever. Um, yeah. But uh, it's nice to have a home. I think. But for the moment, it's good. And uh, it's a uh, we've actually found a way, maybe just in the places we've chosen, to make it not uh, very expensive either, but still beautiful. Good. Are you robbing people? Are yeah. You breaking, we're you're doing, breaking into their homes. We're doing a lot of robbing. Oh, a lot of things are legal in the south of Italy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were there, and now I'm in uh, I'm in Zadar, Croatia. Oh. You, I, ever, you ever even heard of it? Because I tell you what, I had I've not. I've heard of the Croatia part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, got, I nailed that down previously. <laughs> Zadar, uh, Zadar sounds like some kind of cartoony evil uh End game video game boss or something like. Yeah, it does have a that feeling to it. Well, Z, there are a lot of Z's around uh, right. in this uh, Croatian language. Um, but Zadar, it turns out, is just like a nice uh, coastal town of only seventy thousand people, and uh, you can get drinks for not that much and some produce for not that much, and uh, then you just go 
to the water or it rains like it is today and you sit inside a uh, in your apartment that you rented and you bother your wife. That's the other option. Well, you rented an apartment. You're not like staying in a, a short-term place. You, like... Oh, yeah. No, sorry. We did Airbnb, I guess. But... Uh, okay, yes. But it has a kitchen. So okay. So... We can cook. We can cook but... is my point. So it's sort of – it's actually – no smaller than the apartment that we lived in for nine months. So that's the one the, uh, that was as tall as it was wide. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, uh, it felt like an incinerator. But uh, I think the internet's working okay, so this should work out fine, uh, or maybe not. If it's not, tell me, and uh, we'll try and fix it. Well, so far you sound like you. Okay, good. Yeah, I talked with uh, you know Dane Perry at all. I have met him. I talked to him the other day. He said it sounded like mallets. Uh, instead of talking to a human, it sounded like he was talking to mallets. Uh, like hammers? Yeah, like hammers, right. Okay. Well, I didn't know the mallets could talk. Yeah, well, I, I think it just in the sound. That they Maybe if you drink as much as Bane drinks, then, then you have talking mallets in your well, world. Well, yeah, he has, uh, he has a number of problems. It, uh, we can discuss at a later date. So, uh, listen, it uh, might not shock you to learn that uh, my baseball knowledge is not entirely current. Yeah, or, or existent. No, it's okay. It's all right there. It's all right. Um, here, here's, a, here's the thing what I want to start. So um, I noticed that <clears throat> Brandon McCarthy is starting today for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Okay. I don't think, uh, from what I can tell, the Diamondbacks are not necessarily in the thick of it so far as the AL West race is concerned. Or, or even the NL West. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, well, their chances in the AL West are terrible at this point. Yeah, zero percent. Zero percent, and and it unfortunately their chances in the NL West are not much better. Uh, yeah, slim and none, with none taking the lead. Right, and the thing is that uh, okay, so here's the thing: Brandon McCarthy um, has always, has I think, uh, in recent years, at his worst, he's been about an average pitcher. And at his best, he's been above average. Correct. Okay. Uh, now, he right now, he's two kinds of pitchers. He's either one of the top he's, – he's either one of the ten best qualified starters uh, or he's one of the ten worst qualified starters. Uh, by 2014, did it? Yes, by 2014, right. right. Yeah. And he's one of the, the ten best starters by um, park-adjusted XFIP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's one of the ten worst starters by in terms of the actual runs he's allowed. Right. Yeah. Now, you wrote a piece last week that I uh, I saw called "Trust Just Trust the, pro- the Projections." You should trust the projections. Yeah. You should trust the projections. And I think that you were sort of uh, maybe for the benefit of Fangraphs readers, you were digesting something that uh, MGL had written. Yeah. So Mitchell Lickman basically went through and tested. Uh, his in-season projections, which are, you know, similar to what we publish on the site with Steamer and Dips, rest of season projections, uh, just to see, uh, how well they held up, uh, in the aggregate over the rest of the season. So if you took some guys who were significant outliers, and, you know, Brandon McCarthy would be one of those significant outliers, and say, here's a guy who for a month or two months or three months, whatever the time frame is, has performed dramatically different than the projections suggest he will perform going forward. How much weight should we put on the projection and how much weight should we put on the in-season, in-season data? And his conclusion was basically that you should put all of your weight on the projection and none of it on in-season data. Um, because the in-season data, even over a couple of months time, is basically useless beyond the extent that it informs the projection. 
Right. And when you say and, – and the thing that uh, the projections typically utilize, um, well, of course, they, it, it, it integrates uh, certain data more quickly than it will others, right? So like something like strikeout and walk data, it's going to integrate more quickly than it would something uh, that requires a larger sample to, to become reliable like uh, home runs allowed or something. Yeah, I would – so integrate is probably not the word I would use. I would use weight. So I think essentially what this all comes down to is a uh, decision or a discussion of how much weight do you put on recent data. Uh, because I think, you know, generally when we're talking about players where the projections and their in-season data don't match, it's that, you know, there's a reason they had a – a good projection or a bad projection if we're talking about a player who's overperforming. There's a reason the projection doesn't match what they're currently doing is they have some longer track record than 2014 or whatever year we're talking about uh, that is different from what they're doing right now. So they've established over several years, which the projection is based on, some baseline level of talent over, you know, a non-insignificant sample size, uh, either in the minor leagues or the major leagues, whatever. And they said, this is who we are. And then for a few months, uh, or even sometimes, you know, the better part of a year, they played differently than they had in the, in the previous. I think the uh, nature of fans is to want to believe that when a player is playing better than he has before, that he has made some kind of demonstrable measurable change and everything we knew about him prior is is useless and should be thrown away and we should almost a hundred percent weight what he's doing right now i think what mitchell's data shows and what history shows is that's wrong you, you should uh, even in the midst of a player doing something spectacular and new and above what we thought he was before he is more likely to revert to what he was before even if he's doing this for several months. Right. So, so I actually remember uh, when when I first joined uh, Fangraphs, it, uh, uh, John Smoltz was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Yeah. And and John Smoltz had a terrible run with the Boston Red Sox. He had an ERA in like the eights or something. Yeah. And yet his peripheral numbers, or what we call his peripheral, numbers, but his strikeout and walk rate. Now I'm going to talk about th- things like xFIP, but I. Maybe this is a question I should ask first. Something like XFIP, right, is a sort of uh, is a sort of um, shorthand projection. Does that make sense or no? It, it, it is. Uh, so I don't I, I don't know. I'm comfortable calling it a projection because it's just there's not enough data in season and XFIP to to really be a good projection. Mm-hmm. Any projection is going to use multiple years of data. If you're only using most recent or current season data, you don't really have a projection. I would say XFIP is more a form of a regression. Okay, all right. And 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 but of course projections also utilize regressions. Yes. So XFIP gets you to on the road to a projection. It's not a fully functioning one. Right. But the point was that there was a sense at that time when John Smoltz was allowing a lot of runs that he was done as a pitcher entirely. Yeah. And um and, you know, I, I think you wrote a piece at the time or maybe someone else at the site did to the effect that uh, <clears throat> John Smoltz isn't done. Um, this is, we've seen this before and we will see this again. And he'll probably pitch better because that's what – again, it's something like what the projections might suggest and it's also what his performance would suggest. And, but I, and then, of course, he went to the Cardinals and he pitched a lot better. That's right. what happened. But yeah. 
along the way, though, and I guess this is this is sort of one of the things you're mentioning about how uh, fans might react and even intelligent fans might react. They were I know that the like the, the entire comments read in your post um, was to the something to the effect of no, 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 you're, you're not watching the games. Yeah. He's clearly done, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think of an equal but perhaps opposite example with John Locke last year. Uh, Jeff Locke. Jeff Locke, or yeah, right. Jeff Locke. John Locke. If John Locke was pitching in the major league. That would be news. Yeah, it would be news. <laughs> it's straight. Well, that he's alive still right. would be a big part of it, and that he was talented enough. He had learned a sport that I think was invented after his death would also Pretty be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Jeff Locke for like for the, what the first three or four months of the season. Uh, ran an ERA much better than his uh, peripheral numbers would suggest and certainly his projections would suggest, and that did not continue either. Right. He pitched himself out of the rotation by the end of the year. Right. And I, and I, and this is not to say that, that, that every Pirates fan was like, oh, this is definitely his newfound talent. But there's a, you sort of get the feeling like, oh, like, even, again, even an intelligent fan might say, well, maybe Jeff Locke does have a special ability that allows him to do this. Yeah, and I mean, so I don't know how much you saw on Twitter last night, but I got, I engaged Keith Law in a, uh, a spirited discussion, maybe, uh, over the Brewers' fifth, fifth starter, uh, decision, because they're currently to the, to this date stuck with Marco Estrada, uh, even as he gives up, uh, I think now 21 home runs in, uh, less than half of a season. That's a lot of home uh, runs. That's a lot of home runs. He gave up three more yesterday. Uh, I think his, his home run rate is close to two, two per nine. It's not, it's not good. Lots, lots and lots of home runs. Uh, well, they have Jimmy Nelson, who's a, uh, prospect of some notoriety, throwing in the mid-90s, uh, and, you know, putting a good ERA in AAA, and presumably close to ready for the show. Uh, and so, Law, uh, proposed that the Brewers should swap them out, and I, suggested that the projections show that Estrada is still the better pitcher going forward. Uh, and and a lot of people, Keith included, uh, dismissed the projections, saying that there are things about Marco Estrada and Jimmy Nelson that the projections cannot know. And the fact that the projections still like Marco Estrada, who's giving up home runs left and right, uh, mean that they must be flawed and incorrect and that there are things that the projections are just not accounting for that give them the wrong answer. Because certainly a... Pitching prospect with an ERA of one and a half is better than some guy who's giving up, uh, you know, 21 home runs and, uh, you know, 10 starts or however many starts Estrada's made this year. Uh, I think this is, you know, I like Keith. I, I'm, I have no problem with Keith having a differing opinion. We disagreed on this one issue. Um, but I think this is an example of even smart people, uh, have a hard time watching someone be terrible and assuming that it will change. Like, it's tough for Brewers to watch Marco Estrada and think this isn't going to last because when you're giving up home runs, you're doing something wrong. You're unless you're Chris Sale pitching to Mike Trout, you probably threw a meatball that got hit really far. Uh, and so it's tough to watch Estrada, you know, groove an 89 mile an hour four seam fastball and have it go 450 feet and and not to think that he is the, going to continue to do that. And and that's really the tough thing is to divorce yourself from what has happened and what is going to happen. It's one thing to say Marco Estrada has been terrible. That's absolutely true. It's another thing to think Marco Estrada will continue to be terrible because he has been terrible. That's less true. And I think that's a tough thing for people to wrap their head around. It is difficult because you're seeing it. Yeah. You're seeing it unfold. And if you, especially if you're a Brewers fan or, you know, you find yourself watching a number of Brewers games, 
you're witnessing it in real time. That's that's two hours of your life. And uh, and in fact, it's not just ten starts for Marco Estrada; it's fourteen. So okay, now you've right. seen fourteen. You've seen Marco Estrada pitch for about twenty-five hours, and none of those hours went particularly well. Right, and I think you know the the this is where the power of confirmation bias can really stack up is because if a guy gets off to a poor start, you begin to lose trust in him, and you begin to expect him to do poorly. And then you know, let's say the first month is the kind of the the builder of distrust, right? So a guy has a really terrible April, and you're like, okay, well it's early, he can still turn around, but I'm starting to feel like every time he takes the hill, he's giving up seven home runs. And then in his first start in May, he gives up seven home runs, and you're like, okay, as this uh, continues, and what you saw in April continues on in May, you convince yourself. We all do. I mean, this is just not you. This is every yeah. human being. Yeah, yeah. Convinces you, convinces yourself um, that what you're seeing is not just an outlier because you went in with an expectation and your expectation was reinforced. And now this uh, reinforcement of what you were expecting uh, convinces us that this thing is real. And it's a tough thing to escape in life, but I think history has shown that in baseball, reinforcing April performance with May performance doesn't make it real. It, you, a guy can slump for two months and then go on and be good, and a guy can be really hot for two months or three months or four months and then go right back to what he was before. There is just no point at which we should throw throw away years of useful information because it doesn't match what we're seeing now. The better thing to do would be to temper what we're seeing now and understand that that's not all that predictive. Now, I assume now if you if you if you found out. Then Marco Estrada was injured. This might change your opinion on the projections for Marco Estrada. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so one of the things that uh, it was easy to maybe miss in my discussion with Keith on Twitter last night is that I do not think the projections are perfect. And the, and the idea that uh, the ad is the only source of information you should use is incorrect. I think there's no question projections can be wrong. The algorithms uh, have holes in them. There are certainly things that... Uh, like like an injury that a, a projection system is just going to miss on. The danger in that is when we start saying that there's all these caveats that the projection systems miss on, we allow ourselves to um, talk ourselves out of using them in the situations we need them most. So if you're the Brewers uh, and you're trying to decide between Marco Estrada and Jimmy Nelson and you say, okay, I have seen the data, I'm putting some amount of um, trust in uh, a larger sample of history rather than just in-season data. But because I know I have this out clause of saying, well, when a guy is pitching really poorly, maybe he's injured. Or when a guy is pitching really well uh, relative to what he's done previously, maybe he's learned a new pitch or he's changed his mechanics or he's uh, altered where he stands on the mound. There's all these things that the projection can't model. Therefore, in this instance, the model is useless, and I'm going to go with, recent performance instead, you've essentially given yourself a chance to not use the projection uh, when the projection is most useful. If you're just going to use it to say, like, Mike Trout is still good, like, okay, that's not helpful. In the instances where the projection and the in-season performance differ the most, that's where the value lies. And if that's where you're throwing the projection away because you've created some caveats that it might not be perfect here, uh, you're going to end up returning to your instincts and, and using just in-season data when we know in-season data is less useful than the projection. Right, and it seems like the problem with that line of thinking, too, is that in the best-case scenario, once you start once you start introducing other variables that are sort of more nebulous, 
like you like you said, like a change in mechanics or or uh, something along those lines, then you start to weight those again. At best case scenario, you start to weight those as at the same with the same amount of um, weight. I said weight with the same amount of weight <laughs> right. as you would the projections, right? Whereas the projections are based off of uh, you know a substantial amount of uh, data, whereas you're saying, oh, here's this other thing. I, I know that I was watching, uh, let's see, uh, the John Oliver show. You know, this, have you heard of this one? The show? I, I have, yeah. Okay. Well, he did a thing, and I have no interest in getting involved in either the politics or science of, uh, of uh, climate change, the climate change debate. But he did an interesting thing was he said, well, typically what we have is, uh, I don't know what he said, 96 for every whatever 90 99 96 scientists uh, that are you know have say that the climate change exists there are four that who say it doesn't right and so right. he said the problem is when you see it on television you see one for and one against right he says if we were really going to to represent this accurately we would have 96 uh scientists arguing for its existence and four against and but this is this to me represents what you're sort of discussing with regard to the projections. We have it. We have this. We have a sort of binary relationship, right? We we have one pro and one con that we allow into our head. When in fact the projection should be 96 of those pros, and then and then like we make we might make little adjustments would be the the sort of four percent, which are cons. Right. I think the, the entire. Uh point of this discussion, whether people realize this is the point or not, is how much weight do you put on most recent data? So um, there's no question that recent data matters the most. It is the most useful piece of data you could possibly have. You want data from yesterday over data from a year ago. Uh, the question is, the, because you, <laughs> by default, have more data from the past than you do from recent history, how much do you weight a lower quantity of recent numbers versus a larger quantity of older numbers. And this is basically what projection systems are designed to do, is take all of the information and try and weight them in a way that uh, creates a realistic forecast that matches up with history. And say, okay, this player has you know a, a two or three or five or seven year track record of doing this, and he now has a one month or two month track record of doing something very different. What do we expect him to do going forward? And you can basically come up with your own weights and come up with your own forecasts, uh, and you could put, you know, 90% weight on the most recent months and 10% on the old stuff. You could uh, only include uh, back one year. You could include back three years or five years or seven years. These are all the assumptions that uh, forecasts have to make. The key for these forecasters, who generally do a very good job and know what they're doing, and in some cases, like Dan Zaborski, are making a living off of this, uh, is that they need to come up with the weights that actually represent history and best reflect what's going to happen going forward. They can't just arbitrarily come up with numbers and say, I'm going to put 80% weight on the last week's performance and 20% weight on everything that came before that because then their projections will be wrong and people will discredit them. Uh, so, they, which they already do despite the rigor, by the way. Correct, right. People discredit them anyway, but they would have reason to discredit them because these projections would be ridiculous. In mid-April, Charlie Blackman would have been projected to be an MVP, and, you know, since the end of April, he's hit like Charlie Blackman, no offense. No, no, uh, yeah, it's And I think this is an instance of why you shouldn't get too terribly excited about in-season data is if you look at the, this year's April heroes, they've pretty much all gone back to being something close to what we would have thought based on an updated projection where you say, okay, well, this guy 
have had a good month. We'll incorporate that into the projection at a minimal weight, uh, and because it's, you know, 60 at bats or 100 at bats or 30 innings pitched or whatever it is. Uh, and so we'll bump him up a little bit from what we believe preseason, but we're not gonna believe that a player who has a good month is Jose Batista or Cliff Lee or one of these guys who absolutely did have a transformation. And I think it's tough for people to say that no one is going to be projected to be a breakout star or two when there are people who are breakout stars who if you projected everyone to break out who had a good first month you would get some guys right like there are some guys who uh, change something dramatic and the projection systems can't pick up on it fast enough and you know jose batista turns into a very different player than he was before the problem is if you project all the guys who have good strong months based on uh, you know peripherals and not just lucky babups and whatever, and you try and find the next Jose Batista, you're gonna miss 95% of the time. And you'll be you'll get Jose Batista right, but you're gonna miss everybody else, and uh, that's not a good way to run a projection system. So why do our brains? Uh, if you don't know the answer to this, that's fine. But why do our brains trick us like this? Why why when we? Because like you know what we're discussing here, you say. Oh, Marco Estrada, I see it. I see it. I, I know what the numbers are. Uh, I, know, I know what the projections are, but I'm telling you I see it. What Do you have a sense, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, why our brains would have us do that? Because typically we've, you know, we've evolved to create advantages for ourselves and not to be duped. I think, uh, and this is highly speculative, work of a non-scholar on the issue. So okay. feel free and just, you know, give this all the weight you think it deserves. <laughs> uh, I think that what happens is not necessarily an evolutionary, you know, thing. It's a baseball versus the rest of our life. So in life, I think most of the situations we encounter have stability rates, if you want to refer to them that way, that are very, very low. So if you go to Nevada in July and it's 102 degrees, that's probably not an outlier. You can pick up very quickly, like, Nevada in July, pretty hot. This mm-hmm. is just a hot place. This this weather that I'm experiencing in this certain location, uh, probably going to be something like the weather that it's going to be like in most Julys. You're probably not going to go to Nevada in July and have a 40-degree day where it snows. Right. So you can, based on an N of 1, say, I've been to Nevada in July. It's hot there. I don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. If you go to a fast food restaurant, they're not going to serve you filet mignon. You're not just going to fluke into the best meal of your life at McDonald's. You're going to get something consistent, uh, you know, consistently McDonald's type of food most of the time. And I think in general, our interactions with people, the places we go, all of these things are generally representative of the future in small doses. Not all the time. Certainly you can have a bad experience at a nice restaurant or you can meet someone on a bad day. But in general, if you have a couple bad encounters with someone, they're probably not your lifelong friend. Like, you know, this is probably not going to turn into a great friendship. And we have learned that we can make judgments about the future based on small numbers of things in our daily life because there's huge spreads uh, in baseball that don't exist in other parts of life. So I think what we see is that um, when there's a contest between very evenly matched foes, which is what we have in baseball, where even the best team is not that much better than the worst team. And certainly on the individual player level, it's a larger spread, but it's still not giant. Uh, we can have competitors come out on the the bad end of things for quite a while and it not reflect what's going to happen going forward. When in real life, 
if something bad happens to you every time you go to a place for two months, <laughs> that's probably a bad place. Like maybe you you live in a poor neighborhood with high crime. Like there's a you know I think in life it just doesn't model what it is in baseball. Right. So in life though, it makes sense maybe to uh, to draw some conclusions based off of not a huge amount of data because you that's because in most cases you can you can perhaps get some sense of the full picture or get a pretty decent sense of the full picture from from that smaller data sample. Right. I think it's much easier to extrapolate from an N of three or four, five or ten or whatever in life where if you go to a neighborhood and you get robbed uh, and you think, okay, maybe this neighborhood isn't so safe, and then you go back to the neighborhood and you get robbed again, you're, prob- <laughs> you're probably right. This is not a safe neighborhood. You're unlikely to get robbed multiple times across multiple dates in a safe neighborhood. Uh, and I think these are the kinds of things that our brain is used to doing. Is I've had a bad experience. I'm going to leave a bad review on Yelp, and I'm never going to go back there. Uh, and I think that mindset works just fine for the most part in life. It's not perfect, but it works okay. And it works terrible in baseball. It doesn't work at all. You ever left a review on Yelp? I have. Was it a, how many would you say? Uh, maybe five or six. Is it usually if you've if it's been one extreme or the other your experience or did I, you? I, I've only left positive reviews. I'm I am not one who finds it necessary to uh, denigrate a business. I, I think especially restaurants. Like um, the power of Yelp over restaurants is a little scary to be honest with like the the amount of the influence that, that a Yelp review can have on its future business and the margins are so low that even if I have a bad experience I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and say maybe they just had a bad day maybe the food just you know whatever like the maybe the man, head chef wasn't there that day and the sous chef is learning like right. I'm I'm generally not going to eviscerate a, a small business my parents were small business owners I have a lot of empathy for these types of folks uh, if I have a really good uh, kind of I want to share my joy with someone, I am much more likely to do that than I am to say, don't go spend your money there. I had bad food once. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, as, as noted at the beginning of uh, the, the, this episode, I, I was uh, on vacation this past week, so perhaps not very well acquainted with everything that's happened in baseball. However, I did, I, I did uh, before we started talking, took a look at the um, – the different odds the teams have of uh, getting to the divisional playoffs, okay? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, you could make this, you could make these very short answers you want, as you want. But I'm curious as to what, there's five teams, I guess. Uh, I'm curious as to, if you just, again, however brief you want of an explanation, how this team has ended up in this situation, because there's something about it in each case that's a little bit surprising, to me at least, but I'm a dummy, so maybe it's not surprising at all. Okay, you okay. ready? You ready? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, typically a very good team, uh, only have a 1.5% chance of making it to divisional playoffs. What's going on? What's happened with them? Uh, Evan Longoria has not had for power. David Price has given up a lot of home runs, and a lot of guys got hurt. Okay, wait, who got hurt Who got hurt in that team? James uh, Maloney? Oh. Did James who, who Maloney did? get No, all, all of the pitchers. Oh, yeah, well, Alex Cobb was injured out. I mean, the, the, the clear AL favorite for, AL, for the Cy Young Award. No, I think three-fifths of their starting rotation from the beginning of the season uh, ended up on the disabled list, and so then they were you know, pr- promoting Jake Odorizzi before he was ready, and now Eric Bedard is a member of their rotation. Like uh, oh, they've, yes. they've had to call in the cavalry because uh, a lot of their starting pitching got hurt. Eric Bedard seems like that's uh, – I mean, uh, listen, this is – Eric Bedard has been quite good. He's better at baseball than I am. 
But it, at the moment, it seems like scraping the bottom of the barrel. He is kind of in the definition of freely available talent now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so, so a lot of pitching in Evelyn Gray. Uh, Kansas City, I think they're tied maybe with Cleveland as having the second best chance in the AL Central, Twenty about 20%. Uh, 20% seems high for them, to me at least, especially because I know that uh, Mike Moustakis had a lot of troubles and has had a lot of troubles. Yeah, I think their their playoff odds are high because not necessarily what they're doing, but what Detroit is not doing. So Detroit is at a – and forgive me if Detroit's next on your list. Well, I'm no, no, it's ahead, not. Maybe. No, no, no. Okay, so Joe Nathan has been a, a, a disaster. A dumpster fire, I think, has become a, a overused word in, in baseball circles. Joe Nathan has been a dumpster fire. Uh, blowing saves left and right, I think he has an ERA near seven or eight or something. Uh, so the Tigers have lost a lot of games where they, you would have expected them to win based on having a reasonable closer who they just signed to a multi-year $10 million contract, uh, $10 million per year. Um, so that's been a problem for them. And then Justin Verlander has, uh, regressed significantly. So you, you take a diminished Justin Verlander and a disaster and the Tigers have significantly underperformed, which has allowed uh, mediocre teams like the Royals and Indians to hang around maybe longer than they should have. Yeah, okay. Well, that's right. <coughs> now I know that. Uh, the Miami Marlins and the Washington Nationals have the same exact record in the NL East. That's the division in which they play, uh, definitely. Uh, the Marlins, however, have a 6% chance of making the divisional series. Uh, the Nationals, 71 about. Uh, I mean, it's not very shocking to me that the Nationals would have a rest of season, um, a higher rest of season winning percentage. But it seems like a like a big gap for two teams that are uh, both playing well. Well, I think you have to factor in that part of the Marlins' good record to date included Jose Fernandez, and none of their future record will. I mean, 2014 future record will include Jose Fernandez. So you strip him out of the production, uh, makes them worse. Uh, and, yeah. and right, so you take away, you know, maybe the, one of the best pitchers in baseball team is not going to be able to replace him at the same level. And so I think what the Marlins have done uh, is play a little bit over their heads, and now they have to uh, play without their, you know, best player or second best player, depending on whether you think he's better than Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, and the Nationals are getting Bryce Harper back uh, probably in about a month or so. Uh, they're adding Doug Pister theoretically for the entire. Season when he's only pitched for half of the season that has happened so far. Uh, I think, you know, Ron Zimmerman has missed time. Like, the Nationals have had a lot of injury, a lot of injured guys who are going to return and likely play more going forward than they did in the past, where the Marlins are the opposite. Okay. Uh, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, 41%. I, I, you know, it's, this seemed like a division. Well, there's some good teams in the division, obviously, with uh, Cincinnati, for example, St. Louis, Milwaukee is at 40%. I think they have one of the best records in baseball thus far. They do. Uh, I think they're kind of another interesting case about the projections versus uh, reacting to an in-season. Uh, because I think they started, what, 21-9 or something along those lines, and they basically were a 500 team ever since, uh, which is about what I think they are, is roughly a 500 team. They're not terrible, but they're not great. Uh, and, you know, the, the reason that they have a 40% chance of making the playoffs is because they got off to that fantastic start, which gave them a really large cushion 
And, you know, if you get off to a 12 games over 500 start and then you play 500 the rest of the way, you're going to finish 12 games over 500. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how math works. Yeah. And that's usually good enough to get you in the race. And especially if you're in a division where no one else is really running away with it, the Cardinals have been disappointing uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, and so the Brewers' strong start in St. Louis and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh's kind of weak performance relative to expectations allows them to be uh, you know, legitimate contenders, even though they're probably not the best team in that division. So they've banked some wins is the idea. That's basically it, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, the last surprising thing. Uh, San Francisco the Giants have an 80% chance of making the divisional playoffs. I cannot imagine that they had that at the very beginning of the season. Meanwhile, the Dodgers only a 51% about. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the most surprising is that the Dodgers have not lived up to expectations and the Giants have dramatically overperformed. Uh, as, you know, people have written, I think August Fegerstrom wrote this on our site, uh, the Giants have been insanely good in clutch situations. Insanely good. Uh, when the game is on the line, the Giants have dominated their opponents, uh, which has allowed them to dramatically inform what we would expect based on kind of their context-neutral numbers. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that aren't generally predictive, and so we would expect the Giants to perform worse going forward, but kind of the same thing as Milwaukee. They have two months' worth of really great performance already in the bank, and they're not a terrible team. They're probably an above-average team. So you take an above-average team for four months and a really great best in record in baseball team for two months, and you have a 92- or 93-game winner. The Giants can be mediocre from here on out and still make the playoffs. Who, who's played well on that team? Because I feel like even I feel like Buster Posey has not been Buster Posey thus far. He, he, he's not, and that's a kind of a not a recent thing. He wasn't great second half last year either. Uh, so I think they're essentially getting carried by uh, guys who you wouldn't have expected to be strong contributors necessarily, especially when they lost Brandon Belt. You're like, man, where's the offense going to come from? Michael Morse has hit really well. Angel Pagan's been good again. Uh, you know, I think Pablo Sandoval's had a little bit of a revival after a really terrible first month of the season. Brandon Crawford's hit. Brandon Hicks has hit, which not something you'd expect. Uh, you know, they've, it's, instead of having like Posey and Lincecum and kind of the big names on the team carry a roster of scrubs, it's been the role players kind of carrying the underperforming stars. Okay. Uh, I'm going to let you go, Dave Cameron, after answering one question. If Jeffrey Loria, the owner of the Miami Marlins, if he were the head of FIFA, uh, of course, FIFA, the, the organizing body for uh, for the World Cup, which is currently going on, would would FIFA be a more or less repugnant organization? Uh, probably less. From what I know of FIFA, <laughs> I think Jeffrey Loria would be a moralistic uh, high ground for that organization. They are bad, aren't they? I mean, I I'm not a, like a soccer hack, but I have at least kept up enough with like the Qatar scandal of the fact that like thousands of people are dying building stadiums. And they said the average temperature in Qatar in the summer is 122 degrees. And this is where they're going to play the world cup in 2022 because someone in Qatar bribed them. Like uh, this seems to be the height of lunacy and something that even Jeffrey Loria would be like, you greedy bastards. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one thing, right? I mean, you, you expect it from captains of industry uh, for them to endanger the lives, probably of their, you know, their the unskilled workers, essentially, who are putting together these places, or they, you know, it's not shocking to hear that they, um, you know, re uh, relocate the, the people who are living in the poor neighborhoods around where these stadiums are being built. 
But the fact that they would also endanger the lives of the athletes themselves right. <laughs> who are playing uh, theoretically in the heat, that's a, that, that's, that's a hubris, hubris writ large. I mean, like, I, I can't even imagine a scenario in which the players themselves allow this to happen and say, yeah, I would like to play the World Cup in 125 degree heat. Sign me up. Where do I, you know, like, I, maybe they don't have a players association or a union that is strong enough to fight FIFA on everything. Yeah. They should be able to fight them on this. Yeah, that's a good point. Have you, have you been watching any of the, uh, the tournament? I have watched, uh, what did I watch? The Uruguay game, uh, where they lost to Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. Uh, not the, not the entire thing. I watched the first 20 minutes, and then my wife was like, why are we watching this? And so then we, <laughs> We watched a TV show that was more to her app, uh, her liking, and then last 30 minutes or 35 minutes. I actually switched right back to the game uh, 30, 30 seconds before the diving uh, goal that put Costa Rica ahead. Yes. Now, will you watch the U.S. play tonight? So I will. I'm actually pretty excited about this. In Winston-Salem, there's a uh, newish restaurant called the Small Batch Beer Company, which sounds like your kind of cup of tea. We did not yeah. take you there, but it's a you know kind of a hipster small batch craft beer bar they are the uh home bar for this kind of club of rabid soccer fans mm-hmm. uh and so there's about 60 of them in winston-salem i guess who uh dress up and wear flags and send songs and like act like they're an actual soccer match yeah okay and yeah they they go to this bar for every single game uh for the u.s men's national team and uh so i'm gonna go join them and watch them and have, go- have a good old time watching rabid soccer fans enjoy their uh uh, the yeah. sport. Yeah, the sport, yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah, yeah no, I think uh, even though I'm not maybe a rapid soccer fan, that's the kind of environment that you can easily uh, get interested in. Yeah, sure. It's a spectacle. It's a pleasant spectacle. Right. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Dave Cameron. You've uh, fulfilled your, your obligations. Thank you. All right. Stick around for one second. But that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.